You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. I call upon my ancestors to judge me and my clan. Welcome to Modern Myth with the Anarchaeologist here. Um, today I have a very, very special guest. I'm speaking to Tristan Johnson from Step Back History. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you very much. Uh, this is going to be slightly awkward for the listeners of the show because we both have the same first name. So Yeah, this is going to be weird, <laughs> Tristan. So if you could just focus on this Tristan and not that Tristan, uh, hopefully we, we can you can separate us out. Although I have been asked if I'm Canadian before. Well, there you go. Apparently, uh, apparently I sound Canadian. Tristan, um, do I sound Canadian? Uh, no, no, you sound somewhere between Irish and Scottish. Yes. Okay, I like that. that that's, you're already in my good books. So just to give people a kind of better idea of where you're kind of coming from. So you're like a content creator on YouTube. Like, how would you describe yourself? Content creator on YouTube is a pretty good one. Yeah, um, basically my day job involves me making a mini history documentary in the 20 to 30 minute range once a month. And somehow that 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 happens every month. Yeah. <laughs> it's certainly on this podcast is, is meant to happen monthly and never happens on every month. So I honestly would say that you've done a very good job by keeping it to every single month is there any particular part of history that you're particularly focused on or do you kind of like just go for everything uh i mean i started the channel i went for everything because very early on there was actually not that many history channels on youtube so i was a lot more free to do the kind of stuff i wanted to do but the field has thankfully actually grown quite a bit since i signed up so now i'm trying to be mitch much more of a activist historian i guess would be the term I think I've been called the Howard Zinn of YouTube history. And while I still am global in scope, I also have been wanting to keep to more familiar waters, which means that things that I have more actual training and expertise in, which means I stick to major topics of um, like my major subject areas would be the United States and modern U.S. history. But I've also delved into Canadian history, 
and uh, Middle Eastern history. Those are probably the areas that I'm strongest in, but I've done stuff all over the place. So what what actually made you want to really do a video? Like, do have you had like, did you prior to making the YouTube channel, did you have like editing skills? Did you did you know how to put a video together? Ha <laughs> ha um, Okay, so I uh, there's a couple things that built up to that. First of all, when I was a young seventeen year old Tristan back in two thousand and six, <laughs> I graduated high school with a D minus average, which is uh, basically like one point above failing. And I wanted to be like a record producer. So I blew the entire college fund on an audio engineering program that I took and hated with the fury of a thousand suns. And, and that's when I decided <laughs> to, to drop out and go into academia and go into history and everything like that eventually. Then uh, in 2007, while I was actually in that school, I found out about YouTube and I started a YouTube channel that is not this one that I had for about eight years. And at the end of eight years, I had nothing to show for it. The videos were very low quality. So when I decided to reset and start step back, I was going to like do an actual job where I was like, I'm going to actually have a focused idea of what I want my channel to be about and try to do something particularly well. But honestly, most of the editing skills for making my videos look in any way good was just five years of doing it over and over again. Um, are you are you me? Because <laughs> it's weird how our trajectories are almost a little bit similar because um, despite you saying you graduating in 2006 from high school like i graduated in 2010 from high school oh dear. you know like that's only four years between us like it's not it's not that much and at that time i'd already made a podcast for about two or three years um and then when i joined uni i made another podcast about video games because i'm a nerd and um then I was part of the student radio and then I was like, no, I need to do a podcast that actually is much more structured. It actually talks about, you know, like the past and heritage in the way that I want to talk about it. And I'm going to use all the skills I've learned before and I'm going to actually plan it out and make it good. It's just amazing how it seems like there's yeah. a lot of similarities there. Well, there's some distinct differences. Like you have red hair, not mine. But um, <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. it's it's uh, auburn. It's it's tinged with ginger. Okay. Okay, it's burnt sienna <laughs> or whatever. Um, yeah, actually, um, it's funny you mentioned uh, student radio because actually I did that in grad school too. Around the same time, I was uh, about a year before I started step back until I moved to Toronto in 2017. I uh, was part of, and then eventually ended up running a grad student radio show that was like an interview series of graduate students at the university i was at which then we syndicated in podcast too so there's like a there's far too many similarities yeah this is weird we shouldn't have met we're gonna ruin his space time to continue here so, cancel uh, each other out yeah i know it'd be really weird so um so you're 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 kind of study you did end up becoming a historian you've got a master's degree is that yes correct? i did a i did two master's degrees i did one in american studies which for many people who don't know it, it's this sort of weird hybrid field that tries to be this interdisciplinary study of the United States. It's really popular in like Germany and some parts of the U.S., but um, I, I was of one of 
two American studies programs in the entire country that, that did it and like the third year to go through it. And I think now the program's more or less dead. So it was a very small window, but yeah, I have an, I have an MA in American studies with a focus on American cultural studies. And then after that, I did an MA in history and I was working on a PhD in history, but I dropped out in when Step Back started uh, ticking off in a bigger way. Oh, okay. Um, when it, when you talk about like, I'm more interested in the history than the American studies. That doesn't sound really interesting at all. <laughs> uh, so it, when it comes to history, um, where where is your kind of interest in history? Like, what what is why why history and like what is in history that you're kind of you were attracted to? Well, and this will fit really well for this podcast. I started. As a kid, my parents are pretty big on history. So when I was a kid, my parents did a lot of like road trips around the United States. So I've seen, I think I've been to 45 of the 50 states now in the US. And I've seen like every world's largest ball of twine that you can see across the US. Like I've seen uh, like every Civil War battlefield and all that kind of crazy stuff. But then uh, what I was really interested in when I went to university when i first started and i was going to go into i chose history as a field but my interest was in pre-columbian mesoamerican stuff i was interested in like aztec stuff uh but then i got about a year or two into the program and came to the conclusion that one i did not speak nahuatl which has a single program that teaches that that i could go to which is in the university of chicago because um which you know famously easy to get into for history obviously uh-huh. <laughs> and also i was already a year and you know a significant amount of student loan debt into a history degree and so i sort of had to weigh out of that and eventually move in and also it was going to be archaeology and my school didn't have an archaeology program so i was in this history degree at this university with no archaeology program and i needed to learn a language that i couldn't really learn so it was going real great. Um, so I decided to change subjects and the United States was just a country that I knew really well. And I had a, real, a lot of uh, gawking interest in as a Canadian, as many Canadians do. And mm-hmm. then my kind of research interest built up from there. And what happened, I first did the American Studies MA. And when I did the American Studies MA, I was focused on Islamophobia and the post 9-11 Islamophobia. And that was like the subject of the master's thesis there. And I thought that was really interesting, but then what came out of it was this fascination with how the September 11th attacks in general have been used to justify mm-hmm. wars, to justify, uh, you know, uh, surveillance state politics, all sorts of stuff. And so I was interested in how we fight over that story. And I did a master's project on the rebuilding of Ground Zero and the sort of politics of trying to build a simultaneously office building, war memorial, and actual memorial, all on some of the most expensive real estate on the planet. And that led me to a disinteresting discussion about how we remember things. And so I really got into memory studies. And I think that like, that's where I kind of finished off is this, this, this subfield of memory studies, studying how different historical narratives compete with each other to become the dominant one. And I was studying 9-11 when that ended. Um, And my most recent video that came out like an hour before we started recording has a lot to do with memory studies as well. Right. Okay. Um, 
that that is really interesting um because um like i think that's perhaps something that people don't really associate with being studied you know what i mean like nobody thinks that you know when you leave high school that oh yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna go into memory studies oh you're gonna do go do neurology no no memory of place but it's weird because to me that sounds like phenomenology in archaeology you know like this kind of study of place and space and use of like experience and stuff like that i can see like the the lines drawn to it i mean you know what tristan i'm i'm happy with giving anybody the title of archaeologist so if you'd like um if you just bend down on one knee i'll get the sword out and i'll pronounce you an archaeologist just because it sounds like you're really far too close to phenomenology for your own health does that mean I get to spend my summers in the in the middle of nowhere drinking beer? Uh, only if you pay out of the house uh, for no. it and d- d- have really bad job prospects at the end of it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's me just short throwing shade at the uh, industry of archaeology. Um, but that's that's really, I mean, did you really see, did you see yourself going in that direction from when you finished high school? Like, was that? Was that pretty obvious that that's something you would go into? Or is it almost like a little bit of um, happenstance? Is it kind of something you kind of fell in? I mean, when I finished high school, I was like a metalhead who wanted to be a record producer. So probably not. But I always did have kind of a streak of fascination with the United States foreign policy and American culture and that kind of stuff. And obviously, like 9-11 happened when I was 12 years old. So I have like... It was very formative type of time to have a major geopolitical event happen. And, you you know, but it's just old enough to be able to be cognizant of the changes that were happening around you as they were happening. And so that part of me was always something that I had, but I never thought it was going to end up being my career, even though it was a passion, because my parents are very uh, parental in the sense that like, oh, it's like you can't make a I think my mother once told me that no one's ever going to pay you just to think or just pay you to have opinions. And it's like, I'll show you. And then like 20 <laughs> years later, here we are. <laughs> right. Um, you, you're going to have to stop um, <laughs> ticking off the same boxes I have here. So like, um, so when you say metalhead, this is going to be a little bit of an aside. But when you say metalhead, like, what are we talking here, please? In, in, in like, what what would you say is your kind of top five bands right now? Metal bands. Okay. Well, um, at the time, metal has has kind of uh, dissolved from my life uh, in a large way, as like most music has. In a that is way. disappointing. That is deadly disappointing. But go on. At the time. But, uh, at the time, I was super into Iron Maiden, Nightwish, uh, Sonata Arctica. Those are the big three that I can recall. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I, I see where you are. Poser. Um, yeah, total power <laughs> metal goth stuff. <laughs> did you ever, like, did you ever do the gothy kind of stuff? Were you no, ever we I never. Seen? No, no. I was more the uh, leather jacket, t-shirt, and big beard type of metalhead. Right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know the type. I know the type. It's the it's, kind that either likes metal or sells meth. I don't know. 
Or both. <laughs> Why not both? Or both. Yeah. Uh, please don't sell meth. Um, please. Uh, <laughs> I don't know why I should give... <laughs> that's the advice I don't want to be saying on this show. The profit margins are awful. I know. That's that's the main reason. And to be absolutely honest, at the end of the day, it's in this economy... <laughs> It's 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 strange that you talk about when you kind of went through your studies that you had a lot of like changes and you came out with practically two degrees. Uh, because I actually, when I started university, I was a pure chemist. I went in just chemistry and just through electives, I kind of got absorbed into archaeology. And it was actually um, halfway through my third year out of four that I was like, oh, can I change my degree? And so they allowed me to change my degree to archaeology and chemistry as a joint um mm. so I, I that's what i came out with um w- one of like i think it's really weird it's like one of four people in the history of the university to come out with archaeology and chemistry yes nice i'm special well, does that mean that you're like really into soil samples and like uh that kind of like um what's the what the hell is the name of that machine that everyone was using the um oh god it sounded like a superhero thing but it's like a electron it's like a it's like a particle collider that you use oh, to find yeah, out the yeah, content like things. a mass spectrometer yeah yeah okay yeah <laughs> mass spectrometer so that's easy like i've used those before i actually i did um I synchrotron did, synchrotron, uh, synchrotron radiation well you, you use a synchrotron to generate uh your high energy um particles so that when you do things like mass spectrometry you can actually get a better idea of what's what kind of what's is in your samples um it's really cool and like yeah um that stuff's really cool i i actually did mercury analysis uh so we use something called cold vapor atomic fluorescence spectroscopy which is kind of niche even within chemistry it's like really yeah it's it's weird um but yeah no that kind of stuff is yeah but that never interested me i liked archaeological theory and like history theory you know like putting the stuff together like in a theory kind of way and how data interacted with the modern world and how that was then reflected backwards and i think i think it's that's what i really kind of think that we don't really as a as a society in general both i would say in canada in america and in the uk um i think there's definitely a kind of there's not this kind of um integration with the creation of history as a as a thing a lot of people see history as just a retelling of events and it's well it just happened like that you know there's almost like an intuitive side to history um Mm -hmm. what's kind of your take on the sense of how history is created and people's intuitive response to history i think that the statement that historians just or historians just are chroniclers of the things that happen is it comes from an older school of the discipline you know it's very like um you have these like books that came out in like the late 19th early 20th century like the annals school where there's just like here is the history of france in 15 volumes each like a thousand pages long but um history has always been at least since big you know since big social science has taken over this attempt to understand the past and by that being needed to um go into more and more difficult to work with 
sources, primary sources, since historians focus entirely on writing or at least heavily on writing as their primary source. And mm-hmm. so the field has gone into all sorts of areas of how do you tell the story of people who, for example, don't have a writing system? And how do you tell stories of different aspects of society that people weren't writing about at the time, but you're trying to infer from understanding sources, things like race, things like gender, things like class. And that's sort of the really, really short history of the field. Uh, the, the field has always been hesitant of heavy theory and there was this pushback against theory but ever since about the 1990s it's been coming in in a big way and now many historians are sort of post-structuralist in that sense in my my sense or in my uh, my personal take uh which comes from memory studies and a very very postmodern idea which is that there's this historian by the name of hayden white who i think recently passed away but one of his things that he was a philosopher of history and the most poignant thing he told he wrote about was how history, the actual writing of history, is never going to be a 100% accurate representation of the past. It's just as good as you can do. And that is always well and good. But all at the same time, it's written by humans. And the ways that we structure events together is always going to be a form of storytelling, which means that history can be studied as a form of literature, like, a, like an English professor or something like that. And in my mind, since I study memory studies, that mixed with these, this idea to say that history is very much how we craft the narratives of how we understand our own past, which means that it is just as how we fight about different Star Wars as we either like or don't like, part of a cultural understanding of how we see ourselves and that is in very as very much a deeply political uh, battle of and deeply um, act deeply in need of activists because if you treat yourself like you're being objective, just like you are, just like an author who claims they're not being political, you're going to end up with making a lot of careless mistakes. And so, there yeah. I, I find I find very to- very times that I am my work especially is my attempting to take a narrative of the past and looking at how our society has constructed the story of it and picking that apart and finding out where it doesn't work and where it's been constructed to serve other ends because it's a story meant to help us understand who we are today not so much the uh the you know the exhaustive endless retelling of every single thing that happened because it's impossible and so i, I always want to be like well the story we tell about ourselves has some problems and it ignores these things and these things happen to have all of the people who are oppressed in society in it so maybe we should pay some more attention to that i mean you've basically described the premise of this podcast show like that's the whole point of modern myth is that we have so many modern myths that even the creation of history itself is a modern myth the modern myth of objectivity and I think this is something really special, but it's difficult because it sounds really meta to talk about now the, you know, you're creating, uh, you create content, you create YouTube videos, and obviously you're telling a story in those YouTube videos about other stories that are created, you know, which are then if they're off based off primary and secondary sources are also based off other stories from history as well there's a wee bit of um 
a, a kind of like a fractal nature to it um but like how how, how do you how would you plan out your youtube your videos like do you how do you kind of how do you pick and choose which stories or narratives that you want to deal with okay yeah uh, to start i should mention that just because like i'm seeing things in stories and narrative doesn't mean that i'm like fudging the numbers or trying to like take any like facts out of the story because I, that's not what I'm, I'm not saying that that's what you said but i'm saying that somebody who listened to this conversation might walk away with that interpretation and i would say that the story that i tell is accurate and based in up-to-date historical research and i do a lot of work and i interview a lot of historians for my videos in order to make sure of that but um so what i do when i'm trying to make a video is Oftentimes, I collect stories through various different means. Either it's something that I've always found interesting or something that is interesting going on in our current moment that hasn't been examined in a big way and is leading us in a bad direction or something to that extent or something that we're just not that people aren't looking at or people don't find interesting that I think they should. And I then go into research to find out what's going on in this field and uh, usually it's something that somebody's already given me a little bit of a tease note there's there's something there's something more to the story than just what the common conception of it is and then i will interview some experts i will read some books i'll write a script and you know go from there uh for example the video i just released is about socialism and how about how in the united states Everyone's talking about socialism right now, but then the way they talk about it is they're talking about gulags and and bread lines, and it's like, okay, this is not how socialism works. Uh, that's a very gross simplification of the worst parts, and so I decided to dig into that and break that apart to show like how this is a much more big and diverse thing than it turned out to be. And um, you know, to spoiler alert for next month, I'm going to look into Dinesh D'Souza and how he has selectively edited american history to support a right-wing agenda so like that kind of stuff that's that's the kind of stuff that i'm interested in these days i i used to be a lot more like homework help type stuff even as recently as like last fall mm. making videos on things like the zhou dynasty and stuff like that and trying to force it into a relevant story but i don't think my heart was in it and that's not what my viewers wanted so now i'm trying to work much harder to make things much more um connected to what's going on mm -hmm. no i understand and i think it also reflects like my like i've now written for journals i've written for books about podcasting and archaeology that's kind of like been some of the research that i've done and there is there used to be a lot more kind of in what i call institutional content of like here are the facts here is the research that is going on and that's kind of morphed recently into much more content that's about almost like a personality uh based content that's more um about things that you wouldn't come across in a kind of institutional way like you're never going to have the british museum talk about decolonizing itself and getting rid of its own uh, items even though it should and um you know you have this change in how people are presenting they're presenting shows like well when i created this show originally the anarchaeologist in 2014 I, I, want, I, I made it because there wasn't a show discussing the political and social side of archaeology. 
And um, I've now seen people start taking on those things, like you described, uh, taking on things that are much more um, almost like activism in a sense, but not in a crude way, not in a, in a, in a very refined way, talking about things not just in um not just for the sake of pushing a certain agenda but actually breaking things down and showing how narratives are created how do you feel since you started the channel how do you feel that the online space on youtube about history and those kind of talks has changed how has that kind of developed well um oh that's that's a good question uh when i first started when i first came on youtube History was very, the history space was very small. Um, it was predominantly people just reposting torrented versions of history channel documentaries. But also there was just like, there was a very history channel aspect to a lot of the content that was coming out. I Like, I don't fault the, this because my bosses and also the content's great, but like Kings and Generals, the huge YouTube channel that does exactly what it says on the tin it is it is wars it is maps it is arrows it is uh soldiers that's that's what you're getting and a lot of youtube history when it first started was a lot of that it was a lot of let's let's go over kind of like how in science let's go over uh how a supernova happens all the time it's like let's go over the battle of hastings for the 40th time or whatever and i thought that there was a lot of room to explore other things because like historians like i came from the history classroom where everyone was talking about, oh, like, let's study the way that proto-feminism was developing in 18th century America through letter writing. And then I come onto YouTube and it's like the Roman legions against the Huns or whatever. Uh, and I was just like, okay, this is this, this is a voice that needs to be in there. And also what I came across at that period, which is much more sinister, is attempts to... Uh, take the narrative, the common conception of history, which is usually fairly nationalistic and right-leaning, and stepping on it even more. So I saw lost causers, who are people who have a more sympathetic view of the Confederacy and the American Civil War. Uh, you had the sort of typical right-wing rewriting of history about the Democratic Party being this, like not understanding the Southern strategy, or other things like uh, even like darker places like where you're getting onto Holocaust denial mm -hmm. and other very important topics and there was just not a lot of historians who were uh very politically active that were doing more of this kind of you know tv show type stuff that there wasn't really anybody going into that vein and i would say today that there are two maybe three youtubers who are really doing that uh today though history is a lot bigger and a lot of people are exploring more different topics so i'm glad that the variety of what is available for historians are are getting up there i love that we have everything from kings and generals, which is still making great content, to a 16-year-old uh, English girl who's making videos specifically to fill in all of the questions and summarize the notes of the British standardized testing history classes. And I love that, like, we've got everything in between those two. Um, that channel's called A Long, Long Time Ago. I highly recommend it. <laughs> and I am trying to at least in my like in the ecosystem trying to carve out a niche as the guy who straddles this world and the new and upcoming i guess it's not so much new or upcoming anymore but the 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 growing germinating space of what's called bread tube colloquially the mm -hmm. the leftist youtube space 
And I've been trying to straddle that line for a few years now. I think I've fallen more into the bread tube space, but I think that grounding myself in history still means that I, I, I live in those two worlds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I can see that. I mean, I want to pick up on some of the stuff that you've talked about that's quite dark and dangerous just for a little bit. And I feel like this is something that I've try to tackle in what I do um, you know I've talked about repatriation I've talked about the need of promoting indigenous uh, voices I think it's really important that you know things like um, you know what Cheddarman has resurfaced again I don't know if do you remember Cheddarman I do yes that's uh, just for it was the skull that was discovered in England that mm -hmm. it turned out that uh, through DNA testing that British people had a bit more of a, a tan complexion, you know, several thousand years ago. And that made people have a meltdown because pasty white skin is so pretty or something. <laughs> I think I think the ultimately the thing was that like, oh, um, you know, the the DNA basically said that definitely dark complexion with blue eyes. The dark complexion blue eyes is really interesting because a lot of people had thought that the blue eyes kind of came from Anatolian farmers um, who'd come over, um, you know, um, thousands and thousands of years ago, whereas it seems as if the genetic blueprint for pale eyes or blue eyes seemed to almost already be there, and it was also coinciding with darker complexion. And I think the thing about Cheddar Man is, I remember at the time I did really, like, I, I tried to make fun of it, and I tried to kind of call it out, but I don't, I don't looking back now, uh, I don't think it was as effective a way of doing it uh, because I basically was saying this is ridiculous. But I realize now, having looked back in that, I think the problem with things like, for example, Cheddarman, you know, there the main points were um, intuitively why would Cheddarman be black and an ancestor for people in Britain if people are Britain are white, you know of course people if you're british you're white you know that's the intuitive answer that's the well the duh answer and i think you you almost have to you almost have to say well like i know most people think british people are white by default but history isn't uh, it's not as clear in history where these dna strands go and it's not you can't you, you don't when you're talking about the neolithic you can't talk about black and white because that those categories did not exist but it's difficult to get that past that intuitive kind of sense isn't it mm -hmm. yeah this is this is one of the more frustrating conversations to have on the internet because this isn't a perfect example of the concept of the social the social construction and there's a weird segment of the internet that doesn't that seems not only to not understand what social constructions are but are very opposed to the idea mostly because discussions about it have been used to try to be inclusive to trans people but uh this but these the use of social constructions uh, and how race as a category was is one that is created and one that's created out of colonization which was uh, i mean you know maybe i got my timeline mixed up but quite a few years after the neolithic age mm -hmm. and so um and so yeah like i think that that is an interesting that like to me that sounds like a cool video where you would talk about 
how race is a category that we create socially by using the example of Cheddar Man and his, you know, uh, resp- his adoption yeah. or the controversy surrounding him. Like, I think that's like a good example of the kind of topic that I would go for with my channel. I mean, what's frustrating is that when I, I remember it's exactly somebody today or yesterday was annoying me about it. And I mean, what frustrated me is I go straight to their, if I go to the, I went to their Twitter profile. And I mean, like the first thing I read is like, Trotsky invented the word racism to be anti-European. <laughs> like, oh, it was, it was awful. And it was like, Holocaust, which Holocaust? And I'm like, oh okay so this is this kind of person you know you know what i mean like but it's it's difficult for me to say to other people like this person is a holocaust denier oh no tristan you're just being you just don't like his him challenging your cheddar man opinion i'm like no he's actually he's actually a bloody holocaust denier you know it's weird yeah but we've seen in so much conversations to the right now that in some circles of the internet where a lot of young men are being radicalized. Mm-hmm. You actually now have now the video has to be made to explain why the Holocaust happened, and you have to make the case for it because apparently we're not done with that conversation. And um, and it's important. I think that the, the important to do this kind of work, like the work you do, Tristan, is like this is. That felt so self-indulgent. Um, <laughs> how important Tristan's work is. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> You mean, I mean you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um that the work that like uh, the work that needs to be done shows that like we've we've ceded a lot of ground in these conversations to reactionaries, nationalists, and in an age where they're emboldened, where they're committing more acts of racialized violence and the rise of like very overt sexism, transphobia, homophobia that like these are areas of the world that pe- these people have been around for ages. These are stories that exist and we need to be intervening to talk about it in some way. And so the fact that we still have to talk about the Holocaust doesn't, I mean, first, the first uh, instinct is to sigh and be like, are we still having this conversation? And the second one is, I guess somebody's going to have to have this conversation mm-hmm. and I have to now make a video about why this is wrong. And you're going to get a thousand angry comments. You're going to get people threatening to kill you on the internet. That's, that's always fun. And you're just like, all these things are going to happen. And it kind of just, you kind of need to do it because otherwise there's nobody stepping in to stop the curious teenager going on YouTube, looking for looking about history of world war two. And you got to stop them from stumbling upon like, I don't know, Black Pigeon Speaks or something and mm-hmm. ending up going down a dark hole so that you have to put less dark holes around for them to fall into instead. <sighs> and then it's and it's 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 onto the pipeline, it's onto the algorithm. And then you have like Stephanie yep. Molly who's like well, I was recently in Poland, and guess what? There's no, there's no crime in Poland. Why is there no crime in Poland? Because it's 99% white. What a wonderful society. Uh, I'm an empiricist. You know, that kind of weird kind of like, it comes back to the objectivity thing, doesn't it? It's, mm-hmm. oh, it's, yeah. But should, who, who do you feel your audience are? Who, who should we be, who should we be talking to? Because 
I don't know if I can actually get to those angry young men or women who are being sucked up and radicalized by like far-right ideas like I don't know if I can make content uh, that really deals with a, a holocaust denier I can get somebody who knows that the you know holocaust denial is wrong you know but who who should we be talking to what need who needs to hear this well, there, that, there's an interesting aspect because, like, one of the things that comes up is you make these videos that argue for these things, and then you find out that nobody who disagrees with you is watching. But what you can say is that you are inoculating people, you are giving them weapons to. Because in my mind, I think that a lot of times talking somebody out of being radicalized. Sometimes you can do it with media if you catch people at the right right time, like young people, people in the teenagers. Uh, especially men, especially people who have low to no economic prospects, who feel like they've been cheated by the world because of capitalism, but they don't know that yet. And they can stumble upon content and they can come back. And I do have some teenagers in my audience. And I do feel like I've, I mean, they're still, their memes make no sense to me, but uh, they're still, they're still, I feel like I've pushed them at least in a away from a dark direction in life but also at the same time there are a lot of people who are our age in their 20s or in my case 30s who are millennials who have also gotten a raw deal in life and are looking for what's wrong with the world and it's still very easy in fact i would probably say in the case of like older people it's really easy to convince them that you know it's it's this group of people it's this group of people and so um in many ways getting through to those people who are older is about personal conversations. It's about uh, being, you know, it might, I think on average, it said it takes about a hundred interactions with an opposing idea for you to actually change your mind on something once it's been entrenched. And so, you know, you might be number one or number 90, you know, number 100. That, that'd be nice, but oftentimes you're somewhere in the middle and what you can do is give the people in those people's lives the ammunition, the, the the talking points that they need to have those conversations. And that's why I'm still, even if I'm preaching to the choir, so to speak, at least I'm still uh, still helping the, the process. I think it's important to, like, obviously I completely agree with you that like a lot of the times uh, people are vulnerable because of their kind of material conditions. But what, you know, like, I think we can't shy away from people who are actually in comfortable positions and are still being attracted to this, you know, because the perceived slight against them is manufactured, you know? It's not even like, I mean, I've seen people who are financially pretty well off. They've, you know, they've got stuff in life and yet they're heading up right-wing think tanks. They're, you know, doing horrible things, you know, because they, you know, maybe they don't, they think they should have women at their feet. Maybe they think they should have even more power, you know. It's almost like there are so many kind of unifying things that happen on the right. I, I feel like the right always have the ability to unify much easier than the left. I feel, I don't know if you feel that as well, but I feel like when, uh, you know, conservatives, traditionalists, um, alt-right, neo-Nazis, they all seem to have, like, lines that they can, you know, link up on. But 
it's not so easy when you're trying to kind of you know break that apart because anywhere on that spectrum anywhere in that space there's like common themes that hold them together Mm -hmm. do you see what i'm saying yeah i think that the reason that happens is because there's a lot of a lot of the, the 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 social constructs we live in uh help you default back to that line of thinking and so if you don't if you live in a culture like the one that i live in like the one that you live in where there's where white supremacy is default where settler colonialism is default where sexism racism homophobia transphobia it's all the default position it's easier to double down on the things that already exist than to try and make big change in the other direction and if there's any way that we can fix that is that it's culture and we are you're a podcaster i'm a youtuber we literally are culture we are we are the people making culture now and so the best thing that i think we can do is add to the culture of the ideas that permeate society and try and push them in a more positive direction and unfortunately and this is the part where this whole thing is difficult is that the people on the other side are much richer and have way more money to advertise for things and so that that makes things that makes it an uphill battle but also uh it uh, not one that I, we can give up on it but if you if you know of any solution um i would i would recommend that you write to the nobel peace prize committee um they might have an award for you if you can actually solve all of these societal issues <laughs> yeah unfortunately uh it's there's no silver there's no silver bullet unfortunately and you know i i i'm very much of the opinion that like if if there's a plurality of creators out there uh that really assists in the kind of information and message that can get out there um i i think that I think we need to have lots of different ways of communicating history and lots of different forms of communicating it. Um, I mean, what what do you what would you say to somebody who wants to maybe somebody who wants to start something like this, somebody who wants to start a history YouTube channel, like somebody who wants to create content? How do you? What are your kind of like? I don't want to say tips, but tips is probably the best one. How does somebody go about that? How does someone start that kind of stuff? What should they be thinking about? Uh, I get this question all the time, and I've I've prepared I've prepared statements. Um, the first thing that I think a lot of people need to do at the very beginning when they're thinking about making content is decide whether this is a thing that you want to pursue as a drive in your life. Like, is this is this something you want to make a career out of it or is this artistic expression something you just want to do for fun if it's something you want to do for fun make whatever you want it's your it's you do you that's fine if it's something that you want to take very serious and by the way i don't fault anybody for doing that artists making what they want to make is what makes a lot of the world a better place i just i know that a lot of people go into a space like youtube and they want to build careers out of this stuff and that's that's a tougher place to exist in and i would say that the thing that the number one advice is don't get discouraged because most people drop out because they get discouraged you have to be able to withstand months of bad views years possibly uh you have to deal with even when you're successful you might have to deal with a video you put a hundred hours into getting no views and another one that you put five minutes into getting a hundred thousand and 
just um you know patreon drops all sorts of stuff that um can can grind you down so first of all you have to to do this you'll have to have a bit of an iron resolve because the internet is a cruel place huh, and will grind yeah. you to the grind you to the to the bone the other thing is to know where you are going to place yourself there's a wonderful book called how to talk about books you haven't read which <laughs> one of my favorite books by the way which says that the importance of a book is sometimes actually in many times almost as much about where it fits in a discussion rather than the actual content of the book itself and understanding where the book belongs in context to other books is a huge deal if in a media ecosystem a youtube ecosystem a podcast ecosystem you need to know what everybody is doing what field you want to go into and what's going on and then once you have an idea you have to think about then where do you fit in that and there are different strategies you can use to figure out what you can do you can um i think i boiled them down to three main ones uh one is the hardest which is doing something that no one's ever done before. <sighs> so that is looking at the whole ecosystem and saying, all right, I'm going to do something no one has ever heard of before in their entire lives. Uh, these are the people who do weird experimentation and all sorts of pushing pushing the medium forward in ways that uh, to change things. These are the real pioneers. Most of the time, it's really hard and doesn't work. But for the people where it does work, they become the true greats. Uh, the second is to take what somebody else is doing and do it better. Like if you are the best, you know, archaeology podcast on the iTunes Play Store, that's going to give you some cachet. But to be the best, you're going to have to make everything a hit. You're going to have to have the most polish, the most work. Everything's going to have to be amazing. And unfortunately, in a lot of these ecosystems, that is very gated by money because all the top podcasts are now taken up by radio stations and um, all the top YouTubers are now late night talk show hosts. And even in like my space on YouTube, the biggest YouTube channels in my space are run by PBS and Complexly, which is the company started by um, Hank and John Green. And in BreadTube, it's, it's PhilosophyTube and ContraPoints, mm -hmm. both of them who have a team of people who make each of their videos and spend thousands of dollars on props and hire research assistants and have editors and like that stuff is not cheap then so that that is that is the option if you have a crap ton of money and you want to invest in something big it's not it's not the easiest hey, option is that a request tristan <laughs> <laughs> please please invest in me i mean if someone wants to I'm not I'm complaining, um, but the next angle and this is uh, the next angle I would go down. And this is one that I think is one of the better ideas that people go for, which is to take two ideas of things that are going on and see where they meet together. And very much this will come out of your own personal interests. Like I am a YouTuber I am a histor or I made a YouTube channel where I'm a historian who also happens to give a lot of shit about politics and the way the world is and is always mad at the oppression and cruelty towards people who don't deserve it. And I merged that into a YouTube channel that sticks out from other YouTube channels in the history sphere because 
you know, I get to be that Howard Zen of history and or of, of YouTube history, I should say. And if that's a thing you can do, if you can figure out the, the, the chocolate peanut butter strategy, if you will, that'll help. I think that's a really great niche to look for. But, you know, different strategies for different people. And but those are the three. And actually, all of those come from science because <laughs> that's basically how uh-huh. evolutionary strategies work. That's really good. No, it's a really full answer. I, I was, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, this is the, it's quite similar to the kind of advice that I give to people. Um, I've done a couple of workshops before about podcasting and really, you know, the technical aspects to it are not as important as like trying to make up new ideas in like a full way, you know, like it's not enough just to have the title of a video. You have to do the research. You have to have the script, um, you know, there's so much that goes into it. And a lot of people, they know what their first five shows or episodes are going to be, but they have no idea what their 20th is, mm-hmm. you know? And like, it changes over time. Like, um, this is much easier to do on a new platform as it's taking off. But like, you could literally just like talk, talk like bullshit with your friends for two hours in a podcast if you had released it in 2008. But now it's uh, 2020 and you've got, like NPR making fully docu or you have NPR making like fully casted radio documentaries featuring celebrities and things like that. And it's like a much, you know, ser- we're in a post serial podcast universe where you have to kind of deal with the fact that every Tom, Dick and Harry, as I heard yesterday, Hillary Clinton apparently are going to have a podcast. No, um, no, 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 no. She should be banned from the podcast scene. Oh man. I can't oh wait. my God. Although, um, you know, I really want to point out here that um, my first podcast started in 2008 and it was a recording of me and my friends just talking. And uh, it just goes to show you that it can also fail. Don't worry. Even if you're at the start of everything, it can, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it can fail as you start, well. Yeah, and of course, on top of all that, having the strategy when you mm-hmm. go forward, you then also have to yeah. make stuff that people want to consume. And I think that's the other yeah, piece of advice exactly. I'd give forward. Because a lot of people who want to take this content seriously, they want to make stuff because they, you know, they enjoy the craft of making content. And I get that. And I, I, I have that. I have that fun. I, I like editing videos. I like writing. I like researching. But then also. You have to, and this is the big difference I see between creators who don't go very far and those who do, and that is thinking about what you're doing from the other person's perspective and realizing that you're not, if you if you really are serious about what you want to do, you're not making this content just for yourself. If you are, that's great, and I recommend that you do that, but then if you do that and nobody is checking it out, don't blame the world for not understanding your, your perfect vision. Um when you like you like when you're making content to get out there to you have to see things from their point of view so like when i make videos i I, i'd love to make videos about all sorts of things like i've been wanting to make a video about don carlos who's the only native american to ever be executed by the spanish inquisition as part of the spiritual conquest of mexico love to make that video no one would watch it because that is not a thing that resonates with anybody in our day and age while uh, the, to- the things that you talk about need to be relevant to people who are searching out this kind of content, which means that I have to think about what they want and where that and my interests overlap. And that's where you're really going to find the content that you want to make. Definitely. So um, I-, I was wondering, here's a, a little bit more technical question. Uh, you're familiar with Fukuyama. 
Yes, I just, um, I actually just quoted him in my latest video. Oh, see, we're just, I, this is just the, actually everybody, right? Everybody mask off here. This is actually just a chance for Tristan to promote his latest video. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's see, fresh we in were... my mind because it came out an hour, well, two hours ago now. <laughs> so, so, so through the power of Tristan mind melt, uh, we were able to kind of have these talking points already pre-made. Um, do you, obviously, Fukuyama, for our listeners, basically talked about the end of history, um, which was, I, I, would you mind briefly explaining what Fukuyama meant? Sure. Yeah. Uh, in 1991, a little, a little country called the United Soviet Socialist Republics uh, collapsed. And with it was basically the end of this little geopolitical uh, tiffy called the Cold War, in which uh, the popular idea afterwards was that communism, socialism is done. We're done. Cold War is over. And um, Fukuyama took that to the next degree, and he published a book called The His uh, the End of History and the Last Man, which was a book that argued that, well, now that the Cold War is over, we have now proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that uh, capitalism and liberal democracy is the best the best political economic system that could ever exist. And now that we have, we have stumbled upon the perfect system, history's over. There's never, there's not going to be any more, uh, big political grand stories anymore. Cause we're just going to be just improving things around the edges. Cause we, we solved the big question. But obviously, <laughs> yeah, hmm. big question, big question mark over that. Um, do you think history's restarted itself? <laughs> yeah, there, I mean, there were there were there were thinking face emojis showing up even like when that book was published. Like a lot of people were like, dude, what? Um, but and some people in really bad ways. Like I think uh, like Samuel Huntington, I think is one of the most famous responses to Fukuyama where he said, actually, no, because there's these cultures that have Muslims in them and they're fundamentally opposed to freedom. And they're just going to just, and it's a wonderful oh. book called the clash of civilizations. Oh. I recommend you never read that book ever. Oh, um, oh no, it's not and, and, and says similar things about like how Chinese culture is inc incompatible with democracy and liberal oh capitalism. And oh. It's, yeah, it's not good. Um, the biggest opponent to Fukuyama's claim in the end of history, though, now is this um, obscure political scientist by the name of Francis Fukuyama, uh, <laughs> where where um, he's been doing some interviews probably in the last like three or four years, basically since 20, 2008 was, I think, when he started uh, questioning his stuff. And that's I think it was 2008 or 2009 when he recanted his his support for the end of history, the perfect system, you know, when the entire financial system came crumbling to the ground. <laughs> but then on top of that, it, he started doing interviews. Like I think there was an interview on, I don't want to plug another person's podcast, no, but of um, course. the it's Ezra, okay. the Ezra uh -huh. Klein show, sure. where he interviewed Fukuyama and Fukuyama started from, from what I could tell, he was very concerned about income inequality. And I think last year it was that he, said that socialism ought to make a comeback um, <laughs> which was immediately started with the meme that uh fukuyama announces history too <laughs> that's amazing but that, that's so that's so interesting how um it, i think that that goes to show how history is this narrative you know what i mean like 
for people who may be on this side of like oh well no intuitively history is just history the fact that fukuyama could no longer be a is a post fukuyamaist in the sense that he's re- rehabilitated history shows you how how fluid history is and the concept of history i think mm-hmm. that's just something fascinating in that kind of situation and i hope it kind of shows people who are not too clued up about history and theory and stuff and even politics to see right so this guy basically said end of history oh he's not saying that anymore i think i think there's something valuable in using that less more than just a meme i think it's actually a really good example of how that history happens yeah we're in this kind of moment where the end of history story the story that you know neoliberal capitalism is the best system the free market rules everything else drools uh the world we live in that's that's gun that's that's great and everything's perfect that kind of like you know that weird happy feeling 90s thing where everyone was like everything's great don't worry about it we've we've solved all the world's problems is coming down it's crashing down in the hugest way possible and in this period we're in right now which i've dubbed the long 2016 is this time where the 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 story that was pushed forward by so many world leaders that the market-based solutions are good capitalism's good everything's fine don't worry about it are now seriously being called into question because of income inequality because of climate change because of financial instability i mean we're there's a stock market crash happening as we speak right now there's uh the rise of of the far right and like their fascism has made a comeback and just all these things are showing that that this this story that we crafted around ourselves even when it wasn't true even when Yugoslavia tore itself apart in the late late nineties. Even when, uh, when the Taliban took over Afghanistan and Al Qaeda started to become a stronger and stronger media operation, or a stronger and stronger terrorist organization, I should say. That in 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 the West we were saying, "Not nah, we solved it. Everything's good." And then, of course, the first crack in that mirror I think happened on September eleventh, two thousand one, and I think it's been cracking ever since. And I think that. Now we're in the point where it's actually shattering. And what happens next? We don't know. Uh, that's that's kind of probably the, the underlying terror that everybody in the world is kind of feeling right now, which is that we know that the order that we were raised on, that our parents were raised on, is gone. And we kind of don't know what's next. And some of the proposals are pretty damn scary. <laughs> That is crazy. Um, well, I, I really want to thank you for coming to sit down and talk about these kind of things as a special little thing at the end. Um, do you have a question for me, Tristan? Is there anything you'd like to ask me? Do you... Oh, damn. Oh, I need a good chemistry care. question. No, <laughs> I, I'm happy with archaeology. That's that's really my kind of like specialty. Uh, chemistry is kind of sidelined at the moment, uh, unless I pick up another chemistry book. Um, go on what archaeology go on all right Uh, i've always been curious about what the real grown-up archaeological uh description of the antique antikythera mechanism is 
Oh, the 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 weird spinny jingly thing that nobody knows how it works. Yeah, I wonder what like <laughs> the the grown-ups have been saying about it and not the people with weird haircuts on the history channel. No, it's a weird spindly jiggly thing that we don't actually know how it works. Like it, it it's still a mystery in a sense. And that's one of the more interesting things about it, you know? Um the antithica mechanism is something that we don't we don't have very many i think we've only really got one example of it and a couple of cogs elsewhere you know and th- th- what makes it really special is that usually in history we usually have comparative samples we usually have ways of kind of discovering through comparison or of other incomplete things we can kind of piece together a bigger picture but with that mechanism we've only really found one almost complete part of it and everything else is really in pieces so i i i think nobody's really too sure and i i think that's quite a nice place to be because the close the more stretching you do with these kind of unknowns the closer to the history channel you get you know mm-hmm. your hair becomes wilder and suddenly it's like <laughs> well it seems that this should be an example of uh, extraterrestrial connections and you're like yeah no, it's just a really smart piece of hardware you know <laughs> like I think mm-hmm. I think there's a mistake in history uh, that people treat people in the past as stupid and I, I I legitimately think that uh, people uh, like think that we've become more and more intelligent as we've kind of like as the years have gone past. And I really don't think that's true. Yeah, you try to live five minutes in the middle of nowhere in a loincloth. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, who was so, first? So, yeah, yeah. Sorry, go on. So then I guess like. Because, like, the two takes that I would think about with that Antikythera mechanism was, like, either it shows that the Greeks were, you know, it, this, there's the technology levels of that period might have been bordering on something, uh, something much more interesting if their society had kept functioning. Or the other one is that some is singular, extremely smart individual made a cool thing. Yeah. And you see, this is the thing is that like individual, I, 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 I try and stay away from individuals because of this great man theory that, uh, of history, this idea that there are these special individuals that throughout history have pushed humanity further and further. Um, I think that's a really problematic way of looking at history. And I feel like it it's very much in the vein of how history has been written you know uh, history has very much been written about oh well then we you know like oh newton and then einstein and then and you know these people did make amazing contributions and in some cases they did push our understanding of certain things forward but i think we need to be really careful about assigning an individual to like a jump in i don't even know if you can capture technology you know it's a difficult question because to me technology is not like in civilization five or six you know where you have a technology tree that's a predefined path that you kind of well you level up this and then you get this and then you level up this you know it's much it's much more murky than that you know Mm -hmm. so it probably wasn't some like wizard or something 
I don't. I, I'm. I'm. I'm leaning away from wizard, but okay. um, as any good archaeologist, I'm. I'm not. I'm not dis- discounting it. You know, we could have wizards. I don't have yeah. any evidence against that, but it's definitely not aliens. But it could be oh, wizards. Of course not. <laughs> I just thought you know it could have been like just some like Da Vinci type person whose none of his work survived or something. Either oh, way. hello. Who, who's, yeah. who's joining us? That is Romeo. He is hey, Romeo. on the other side of the apartment, which is not very far away. So. <laughs> Do you know, it's actually, Romeo's not the first cat to be on the podcast. Um, I've, I've had a number of cats chime in um, on the podcast. So Romeo, he'll get a credit as well. And I will Excellent. make sure to include the credit this time. I was told off because I didn't properly credit the cat last time, so... Don't worry. Romeo will get his moment. All right. Thank no you. worries. Well, thank you very much for talking to us. Uh, can you just let, us, let people know where they can find your work? Sure. Yeah. Uh, if you want to find my YouTube channel where I do my YouTubing it primarily, it is at uh, stepbackhistory.com. And if you want to see me ha- do a bunch of 2020 malarkey posting on Twitter, you can go to Tristan PJ on Twitter. Excellent. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is fun. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.